<sighs> so I was all set up to record this cheery, like, hey, subscribe to our Patreon because blah, blah, blah. And then fucking Schoology. I got another email from Schoology. This is not an advertisement from Schoology. I actually sort of hate them about missed assignments. So instead, you're going to get the real me. Hi. Uh, so I have a lot of exciting episodes coming out on Patreon. For just $5, you can get tips on how to stay sane during college application for you and your kid, expert advice on growing your band from a pretty badass media strategist, uh, an explanation of the controversy of DNA and whether the use of it to solve crimes is actually an invasion of privacy, a closer look at New York's epilepsy colony that really lasted much longer than it should have. Think like 70s, 80s, as in 1970s and 80s, where treatment meant actually you're just stuck here for the rest of your life. And also an early release of a two-part episode where I speak to a psychologist who only learned that her husband was leading a double life when he turned up dead. So... Subscribe to the Patreon at the $5 level. You want to hear any of these episodes. Thanks for listening. <sighs> Text me if you hate Schoology as much as I do. Ugh. My name is Dr. Lindsay Wisner. I'm a psychologist, author, a mom, and still an occasional shit show. You're listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. This is a place for smart, sweary women to talk about stuff that matters. Stuff that can make us uncomfortable, but stuff that helps us to learn and grow and be okay with living in that discomfort of not knowing the right thing to say or do all the time. Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Instagram at psychshrinkmom or at neuroticnourishment. So what happened next? So where we left off was that his body had been identified by me, by law enforcement, and McMaster had turned himself in, which is how they were able to resolve what had happened. Had McMaster not turned himself in, I'm not sure it would have ever been resolved. Two, was, wait, two follow-ups. Why did, you don't have to answer in order, why did McMaster turn himself in? And also, how was his body identified? Because in the last episode, we said it was just a head. Right. Okay. Well, he turned himself in because he was an accomplice. He helped bury the body. So he was involved, like it or not. I know, but like, you know. And he, he, yeah. thought he saw his chance to get out from under it by turning state's evidence and walking away free. And it, it did work. And they were able to identify him because in one suitcase was his head. Another suitcase was his hands. Another suitcase was his feet. And they weren't... I mean, if you're going to separate stuff, separate it, no? Yeah, well, they're high. What do I can say? So they uh, had his fingerprints and, and his um, head and identified him that way. Uh, that makes sense. Let's say the names. I'll say them. Uh, Don Spence. And Don Spence and John Carl Fry Sr. John Carl Fry Sr. Um, and I 
do, and I think you do have some sympathy slash empathy for Don Spence, unless I'm reading too much into no, it. No, I, I, to a point, yes, I do much more than he, for sure. Right. I just saw him as a as a lizard, you know, cold blooded and without and empathy. Lizard and is way too nice of a term. Incapable yeah. of change, incapable of empathy, and just a, you know, basically he was using up oxygen that wasn't entitled to. Yeah, Dawn Spence was. I mean, you mentioned this several times. She was a valedictorian of the, her small school. She was uh, attractive. I wasn't blown away. But, uh, you know, she was attractive. She was young. I think she was looking, there was something missing in her family. She had a lousy childhood, she much like not. my own mother's childhood. Okay. Um, I, I have mixed feelings. On the one hand, I, and I'm sure you are the same, I feel very strongly about the importance of women lifting up women. I do. And it really bothers me that once she knew that Al was not a widower as he portrayed he was, but that in fact, I was very much alive. And that she was hurting me. She didn't know me, but she was hurting me by taking money from him and having him and her involved. She only deepened the agony and she rather than backing up, that always did bother me because that's not how women should treat women. It's not, but women have affairs with men all the time. I know their own needs. And also, I don't know. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just adding like I don't know how much she knew about the actual finances that she was taking, never mind the emotional reserve, mm -hmm. because he presented himself as always available. Mm -hmm. he did. Um, but yeah, I do think women should lift up women. And I also know that I don't like hanging out with a bunch of women because I don't trust. I know one of them's, I don't know. Uh, this is my issue, but you know, uh, I don't want to hang out with a gaggle of women because one of them is going to turn on me because I'm paranoid. Um, but also, I just get the feeling that she was doing her best to survive and I have no... Well, she was involved in survival sex. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, she wasn't I have in no love with admiration, him. support, nothing. No. She, no. Uh, was she involved with John Friday? Yeah. Anything? Oh, yeah, definitely. She wanted to marry him at one point. She proposed and he said no. So my feel, my mixed feelings about her was that on the one hand, she was a victim too, given her child abuse issues, you know, as a child and her parents divorcing, et cetera. She did not have an easy childhood. No, and she also, her dad got custody, which. Yes. I just, I mean, I, this is sexist, but I, I, it seems like a bad idea to me. Yeah. On the other hand, I know that my mom had a similar history as she did and she turned out fine. I did not. So, you know, it does not force you to become the person you are you, you have choices and i think that was under looked at overlooked i guess is a better way to say it that was overlooked all the choices that she made which led to that point she chose to be with fry she chose to have drugs she chose to live downtown yeah. she chose prostitution she chose to be involved with my husband so she's not exactly this puppet that she has no control over her life. By no means, uh, by, by no means. So I, I had mixed feelings about her. I did not have mixed feelings about Fry. No, not at all. no. I mean, this man was manipulative as fuck, pardon my language. I mean, I, we were also talking before we started that um, he had uh, Celia, who was an ex-girlfriend posing as his sister. And, you know, he had beat the crap out of her. Uh, 
Similarly, similarly, Don Spence had an ex-boyfriend who would be yeah, Donnie Carlton. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so in a sense, we're talking about this perfect, imperfect storm of horror coming together. Yes, it was. In the meantime, when all this was happening too, my husband had a psychotic break and he was hospitalized at the University of Michigan for six weeks. So, and that was not the first time you then found out. I did not know that then, but yes, that was the third time actually. Okay. Um, I only remembered two. So when was the first one? He was in the army and he was medically discharged and uh, could not work and was placed in a very expensive, for long, not very long, but a very expensive private sanitarium. And then uh, there was another time after his divorce, and then this time, which was longer, and that was at the University of Michigan. Which to just circle around back to his divorce, he told you one thing, but then you later found out the he truth. He gave me a different date, which I thought was weird. There was no reason to lie about that. I didn't care when, I don't care if it was 1967 or 1972. What difference did that make? 68 to 977. I mean, it's five years. Yeah, but so I, it's like, whatever. I don't, and he always spoke very well of her, which I liked. She was, um, she had a master's degree in astronomy. She was a very bright woman. So um, anyway, uh, so after three, three, I know three hospitalizations. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I, know, I was going to say, I know we don't use the term mental breakdown anymore, but uh, for common folk, it's a way to figure it out. But three inpatient hospitalizations for a significant period of time which mm -hmm. means he must have failed the 72 hour test yeah I, right. I don't know what it's called in Detroit yeah he yeah. was gravely disabled yeah right. and so his mother lied when they asked her for history she really washed it all over and no he'd never been hospitalized before and know this and know that but then behind my back she'd call them and said well actually there it's his third hospitalization so and it, I didn't know any of that till much later. But when he got out of the hospital, I sat him down and I said, you know, this is not going to work. I, I, you've kept me in the dark. I had to figure out our bills. I had to figure out how to contact your patients. You don't keep records. You're not supposed to go back to work and you're not driving the train. I'm not going to pick this up again. I'm not. It was one of our first really long drawn drag out arguments. And I thought, what a crappy time to have a long drawn out yeah. argument is the day of his release from the hospital. But I thought I am not going to do this again because he was insisting on going back to work. He was ignoring all the discharge instructions. And I said, I'm not going to pick this, this mess up again. I won't. I meant it. So I said, you're not going back to work. And I need to know what the bills are because I'm not going to be second guessing this. We really clashed big time. And also what you and I both know is that work wasn't always work that he was no. going back to. No, but I didn't know that then. No, obviously, but yeah, I right. didn't know it then either. You know, I was seven yeah. but, um, right. or something. I don't know. Uh, but, but part of, I think what he was looking to go back to was this fantasy fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason it's significant is because during his psychotic episode, he was saying fragmented things that I couldn't make sense of. But once I understood the full story, it made sense. Like he was saying things during this long drive to the hospital, things like, I've been bad, you're so pure, snow, snow, snow. Or he'd say things like, um, you're pure, uh, Cass, birthday, Cass, birthday. And I'm like, what is he saying? Well, when you 
put that in the context of his of what he'd been doing it makes perfect sense he could not he had no longer could handle this clash of two worlds which he created and they had also found out about him he, he went to their house which he'd done many times and found a piece of paper with his name his address phone number etc cetera, etc cetera, on it the jig was up because he had been presenting himself as dr miller this right. whole 18 months charade right and uh, now he was a cool pool player he was a physician at i right. believe he was a physician at the hospital yeah. you were working a, at right um i was one of the hospitals i worked at yeah detroit receiving right right and so the jig was up and he was no longer in control and i think it freaked him out and he ended up in the hospital which you know the other thing just uh when you speak to people who are hospitalized who are in a psychotic or um semi-psychotic whatever state you know when when they speak you know uh it's interesting there is some truth to it you just have to look yeah. under the layers That's right yeah it's word word salad and it's word salad but it it's a recipe yes it is so the reason that came out is important later is i think it, it really illustrated how he was losing control and they could see that and he was also at the bottom financially. He had taken money from his mother by that point in time. So Donna kept track of the money. And at this point in 1985 dollars, again, he'd given an excess of $150,000, which is closer to $300,000 today. Wow. So um, he had no more money to give and stupidly went over there to tell them that. Like, hello, you're gonna tell somebody twice your size who's high on drugs, who's dependent on you for the money. Sorry, I've run out. Do you think, I mean, was he, he I'm not expecting an, an actual, but like- I think was he, he was. Looking for love, acceptance, you know, yeah. Yeah, I, he was desperate. Yeah. And he, he, all of his tricks up his sleeve weren't working anymore. And of course they didn't take the news well. Their, their supply of money was gone. That might be an, a bit of an understatement. Yeah. In terms of, yeah. And I think it was premeditated because he had a Louisville slugger waiting behind the door jam when um, he went inside. I can certainly see that from what I read from your work and uh, Lowell Caulfield's is that it feels like everyone had a Louisville slugger in Detroit at that time. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people did carry them around. Yeah, but, but I, I certainly... And the reason they did is because you can't be arrested for carrying a baseball bat. Right, which is fascinating uh, and makes total sense. Um, so it's interesting that you think it was premeditated because. Oh, I, I definitely do. So to me, it's if you lose your like, why take that risk? But I'm not high on drugs. so Right. And the reason I say this is because he had told other people, Fry had told other people that yes. he wanted him gone. Yes. And that he saw that the writing on the wall that he can't keep up this degree of money. Everybody's got a bottle. Everybody can spend themselves broke. And I don't care if you're a millionaire. You, that's not hard to do, right? Yeah, yeah. So he saw that day coming, and it did. And I think he was prepared for it and absolutely intolerant of it. And do you think Al had any idea what was coming? Part of me does. It's one of those questions that I don't know the full answer to. But he went over there in person on a rainy night after work to tell him, sorry, my pockets are empty. I'm, I'm like, whoa, that's like, 
putting your head inside the mouth of a lion, you know? It is, but as you said, it wouldn't have made a difference had he gone over in person or made a phone call because they had all the, his and your. Info. They did, and mine, that's true. And they also had the layout to our house because I had a, in that back when I was thinking something is not right, I could feel this storm coming. I created a book for insurance purposes in right. case there was a, our house burned down. I felt like I had to do something to encourage my safety. And so I assembled a book of the belongings of our house and listing the items of what I thought each of them was worth. And so we would have it in one place to turn into an insurance company. Well, he had given that book to Fry and Spence. So they had the layout of our house, all the contents of the house. And the fact that Al had stopped smoking and those three cigarette butts were on the outside of my house and that I was followed makes me think they were closing in. It's such an arrested development of your your husband. I mean, I mean, like, how did he not? I don't know. It just feels like at some point he'd like, been rescued his whole life. Yeah, his parents rescued him every jam he got into, and he had never faced the consequences of his bad decisions ever. So why would this be different? I, I agree. I agree. But it's by that I mean arrested development where they just stop. You yeah. Know. Um, Okay, I want to get to the positive of where you are now, because there are going to be people listening to this. Like, this is a horrible story. And, you know, um, uh, Don Spence, uh, Fry, uh, Frank, I kind of want to know where they are now briefly, but I also really want to get to how you... Well, Fry died in prison of diabetes and hep C. Are we allowed to, are we allowed to like, I'm Jewish. Oh, it's public record. I know, but like, am I allowed to do a sign of the cross even though I'm Jewish? Oh, (laughs) I mean, I just, I think he would have gotten out and done more damage if he had. Yeah, he would have, but I don't think he would have gotten, he was given life without the chance of parole. I did go to the prelim exam and that's the first and only time I ever saw the two of them. She got a very light sentence. She was out before I could sell my house. So she's out, fries in, and I sold my house and the media would not let up. And I had a moment where I thought, you know, I'm done with this. I'm taking back control of my life. And it meant pulling up roots, changing my name, changing my phone number, selling everything I could sell and leaving town. And, and I good did. good for fucking you. And I'm, I'm, it's amazing because you went from a 19 year old dependent on, you know, a man you know 18 years older to when your world fell out from under you you got up and moved forward well I thought that's the only option I have I thought you either are going to be the nail or the hammer and I thought I'm done being nailed to the cross it felt like by everybody I mean financially physically socially oh yeah also there was a friend i, I can't remember i'm blanking at his name there's a good friend of your of al's who kind of knew what was going on and didn't and, tell me yeah and so when you say like nailed and socially like i'm pissed at that guy <laughs> yeah and i i just had it so i thought you know in a way this is an opportunity for me to totally redesign my life i have no children i have no husband I can quit my job, sell the house and move. And I don't know what's in front of me, but I had a, a friend who lived in New York and he called me. He was very nice. His name is Matt Alexander. He's a psychologist as well. And in a very gentle, calm way, he said to me on the phone, he said, 
well, life is meant to be an adventure, you know? And I never forgot that. It was like, it meant this is leading somewhere that I could redesign my life and I'm going to take advantage. Which I love, yeah. And so I literally took out a map. I thought, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? And I decided I did not have the energy to do clinical work ever again. And I never returned to clinical work. I didn't realize that. I, I just totally did not have the energy for it, but I love teaching. I love research. I mean, so clinical it, work takes a lot out of you. It does. And it takes a long time, as you know, to build your practice up. And I thought, I, I've got so many bills. I can't wait five years to get an income. I can't. So I went into teaching, found out I loved it. And the, I went into the Midwest, met some wonderful people. And I wanted to teach cross-cultural psychotherapy and nobody else wanted to touch that class with a 10 foot pole, but I loved it. And I thought if I'm going to be a better educator, then I have to travel. I have to see the world. I have to go to these places I'm talking about so I can explain the cultural ramifications for their behavior and bring back artifacts. And then I got more into my photography and I would say, this is a picture of what I'm talking about. And I found that when I did that, I wasn't consciously doing it for my self-betterment in terms of the PTSD, but it really did help it because I looked at people around me, especially women around me. I'm like, holy crap, I don't have it so bad. These are people that don't have clean water, that don't have rights, that are being abused and nobody gives a crap, that are married off at nine and 10 and 11 years old. I saw people have been, had female circumcision. I, it was like everywhere I turned, it was like people that had no chance at all of a life. I don't care how sick you were. You'd never see a doctor in your entire life. You'd never be able to drive. You, your life was in somebody else's hands. And I thought, I've got a lot going on for me. I've got my education. But I gonna- love that flip. Your life was in someone else's hands. And then you were like, uh-uh. Now let's help other people. Yeah. No. And I started taking stock of what did not change in my life and all the assets I had to work with. I had rights as a woman. I had my education. I had my health. I had my independence, my transportation, clean water, clean food, et cetera. And I just began to focus on what did not change and what I had going for me. And it made a total difference in my outlook, except that when I went to my new home. I never spoke about this. I did not want people to pity me. I did not want them to pry. I mean, my whole reason for leaving was to put it behind me. And there wasn't any internet. So I didn't know how to connect with any other homicide survivors. So I kind of did it on my own by reading books about other people that had been through a lot of different situations and came out okay for it. And that became my collection of books that really motivated me, really inspired me. And the, so I, uh, that was my life for 30 years. And oh, in the, in the interim, I adopted two children. They were uh, sisters, full biological sisters. They were in the system, so to speak. Uh, their biological mother had been murdered and their biological father was incarcerated before her murder, was not suspected of being involved. But um, so they were orphans. Beautiful synchronicity in some way. Yeah. And the social worker said, you might be the ideal mother for her, for them, because you, you, as they get older and have questions, you can help them with that. So are they doing like, well? Pardon me? Are they doing well? They are. Um, and uh, they've had their challenges. My, my youngest, bless her heart, she came, she called me one day, dissolved into tears, frantic. 
I, I knew she was at the doctor's because she was having stomach issues. And I thought, oh my God, it's cancer. That's where my head was at. And when she said to me, no, mom, I'm, I, I really was convinced it was cancer because I'd been diagnosed with cancer. I guess cancer was on my mind. And so when she called me frantic and said, I'm not, I'm not okay, mom. And that's where I thought she meant. Right. And, and she said, no, 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 it's not cancer. I'm pregnant. And I go, oh, is that all? <laughs> I mean, I was so relieved. Sure. And she, and she said, but, but, and I said, just stay where you are. I'm going to come to you. You shouldn't be driving this upset. So I went to her. We talked it out and I said, look, I said, when you're pregnant and you don't want to be, you don't have a lot of good options, but here's one thing I want you to hear loud and clear. You're always going to have regrets, no matter what your choice is. Those days will be there. It doesn't mean you made the wrong choice. It just means you were, you have some tough decisions in front of you. And no matter what you choose, I'm behind you hundred percent. This is your pregnancy, your life. You decide what you want to do. And I'll back you up. I will be your birth coach if you want to do that way. If you want to get an abortion, I will go with you to the clinic. This is so beautiful, especially, I mean, the timing is perfect for this fucking country. And, and it's just the perfect thing for a mother to say. So we went, I said, but we don't have enough information, honey. We need to get you an ultrasound because she had um, had no periods in two years. So she didn't know how far along she was. So we went and she wasn't showing much. So I just assumed maybe five weeks, maybe eight. So I went with her to the ultrasound, expecting it to look like soap suds, right? When they did the <laughs> test. Sure. And instead this child practically waved at me. Oh my gosh. She was six months pregnant. That's amazing. And I said, you know what, honey, the decision's kind of made. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, she had to get another test done the next week. And my husband came. I was I was remarried by then. And my husband came and he's ex-military. And it was the funniest thing because during that ultrasound, Addie, which is her name, um, so it looked like she saluted him and she was just thrilled. Like, oh my God, she's gonna be in the military. I mean, we were just so behind her. And then my husband said to her, he said, um, that child will never want for anything. You will, but she won't. Uh, that's the definition of motherhood. Yeah. So you're going to, you know, have to struggle for your clothes on your back, the car you drive, but she will never go without shoes or food or medical care or whatever that child needs. We got it. Oh, Jan, that's such a wonderful story and such a nice note to end on. But I also want to say you have another book coming out. I do. It's, it's called Not Done, but. Well, it's coming out yeah. and I'm going to pre-order. So it's called the, um, the survivor's guide for coping with the murder of your loved one. Yes. Um, and, uh, we will include all, we as me, I don't know why I say we, it just sounds fancier. I will include all relevant notes in, in my show notes and Jen, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Well, thank you for allowing me to be on. Appreciate it. Of course. Hello. I'm Dr. Jan Canty, and I'm here to tell you about my new book entitled Survive a Guide for Coping with the Homicide of a Loved One, due to be released in the spring of 2022 on Amazon. As a psychologist and homicide survivor, I understand the need for useful information, a kind of roadmap of what to do when tragedy strikes. While this book is not designed to be the only source of information for homicide survivors, and their friends who want to help, it does cover a lot of territory. Survivor Guide for Coping with the Homicide of a Loved One wrestles with practical but tough topics like the death notification, funeral planning, 
the over- or under-involvement of the media, procedures of the criminal justice system, the tough task of crime scene cleanup should you do it yourself or go with a pro, a chapter on grief in children, dealing with the parole system, and more. There's also several pages of resources and an extensive glossary of terms. Written in easy-to-understand language with space to jot down important information, this book covers the basics. Please look for updates on www.jancanty.com, won't you? Thanks for listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. If you like what you hear, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, shout from rooftops, smoke signals, hot air balloons, whatever. I'll take any of it. Uh, and if you really like what you're listening, why don't you become a patron? Join our Patreon. Visit us at patreon.com backslash neurotic nourishment. Thanks. Thanks.